Hello and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. Today we are reading Genesis 6, Ezra 6, Matthew 6, and Acts chapter 6. And we're asking the question, who were the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6? Were they the offspring of angels and humans? Is such a thing even possible? It may be that our focus reading for the day really should continue in Matthew chapter 6 because Jesus is teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount is just honestly so majestic and so beautiful that no other passage in the Bible should really overshadow that. But if you will indulge me for a little bit, we are going to get to Matthew 6 in just a few minutes. We will uh, return there tomorrow. I believe Matthew 7 is going to be our focus passage for tomorrow. But today we're going to discuss the Genesis passage. Here's the thing. Even ever since I was a boy, Genesis 6 has been one of my very favorite passages in the Bible. I feel like I can almost remember getting chills down my back when I was a kid just starting out reading the Bible when I got to that verse that said there were giants on the earth in those days. It is a fascinating scary, uh, scary in a number of ways, including uh, scary in terms of the incredible power of God. It's a fascinating passage. It's also very mysterious. Uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing, I did write a book last year called Angels, Ghosts, and Other Bible Mysteries. You can get that on Amazon. It's very focused on many of these kind of mysteries that are brought up in Genesis 6. And if you like the discussion today, that you might enjoy that book. If you don't like the discussion today, then you might want to skip that book. I do want to tell you, today's podcast is going to be a little bit longer than normal because we're going a little bit deeper into Genesis 6 than we normally do. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of notes on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Every episode we produce, and this is a daily show, there's show notes available at BibleReadingPodcast.com. Now, I don't put all the scripture up there, but I do put a lot of the scripture we read and most every quote and, and question we handle and all of that. Today's entry is going to be very long, so hopefully you'll find some interesting stuff there. And that's the introduction. Let's get into the Word of God, because that's what you're here for. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be a 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sea, of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, 
I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finish the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood. Floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You will also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God commanded him. So, pretty wild passage there, Genesis 6. And before we get to the question and answer section, let's mine some spiritual gold from this passage. And to do that, we're going to turn to our old friend and mentor, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, who was a mighty man of God pastoring in England in the 1800s. This is what Spurgeon says from that passage. My brothers, how displeased the great God has been with men. He said that it repented him that he had made men upon the earth. That was a striking expression, which is used in Genesis 6.6. It grieved him at his heart. He seemed to grow so weary of man's wanton wickedness that he was sorry that he ever made beings capable of so much evil. Yet, he is so well content with his beloved son who has assumed our nature that we read of him, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. It's Isaiah 42, 21. The Lord looks down upon those who are in Christ with an intense affection and loves them even as he loves his own son. For that is the meaning of this word, quote, in whom I am well pleased. All who are in Christ Jesus are pleasing to God. Yes, God in Christ looks with divine satisfaction on all those who trust his son. He is not only pleased, he's well pleased. If you are pleased with Jesus, God is pleased with you. Or if you are in the son, then you are in the father's good pleasure. Now that is a great word of encouragement after reading this terrifying passage in Genesis 6 where God brings punishment to a wicked world. I would say that Genesis 6 presents us with one of the top five mysteries in the entire Bible, especially if you read read it in the King James Version, which I did when I was a kid. So just, just listen to the first couple of verses from the KJV. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants 
in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So many questions. What is going on here? Are angelic beings having relations with human women? Well, apparently so. Were the offspring of those unions giants? Eh, maybe, but that's not the best translation. Did God send the flood because heavenly beings and earthly beings were having those relationships? Again, I'll have to give you a week maybe on that. These are some tough questions, and they're likely too big for our short little podcast to fully cover, but I do want to try to give at least a short answer to each one of those questions. So question number one, are heavenly beings in Genesis 6 actually having relations and children with human females? And I guess the answer to that question really depends on who exactly the, quote, sons of God God are in Genesis 6. There's three main theories, and I've, I've heard all of these. The first theory is that the sons of God of Genesis 6 are powerful men and leaders that were human. You know, the kind of guys, maybe significantly above the average guy, maybe bodybuilders, like a, a Thor type or whatever. Um a Chris Evans type, you know, somebody's in really good shape, really uh, a, a great athlete, or Derrick Henry from the Tennessee Titans, a big guy, really, really strong, really, really tough. So somebody like that. That's theory number one, that these sons of God were just way above average humans. Theory number two is that these sons of God are descendants of Seth, the third child of Adam and Eve thus making the daughters of men primarily descendants of Cain, the first child of Adam and Eve. That theory is the one I've honestly heard more often in seminary and in academic circles. In fact, one of my favorite professors, a Hebrew professor that I have enormous respect for, Dr. Timon Knight, held fast to that belief that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are descendants of Seth. I don't, but we'll get to that in a minute. Theory number three is that the sons of God are some type of heavenly creature, an angel or something like an angel. And as you study the Bible, you're going to find that it's much more complex spiritually than angels, demons, and humans. There's a lot of heavenly beings that are discussed in the Bible, and we tend to lump them all together. I don't really think we should because the Bible doesn't. So I personally see no grammatical or historical evidence of theory number one. I mean, Really, all of a the sudden, these guys realized that human females were beautiful, which is what verse 2 says. That theory doesn't seem to fit the context of the verse very well. And theory number two is even less so. There's literally nowhere in Scripture that suggests that the daughters of men were of the line of Cain and the sons of God were of the line of Seth. Seth is mentioned about ten times in the Bible. And he's only mentioned twice after Genesis 5, and not at all in Genesis 6. Once Seth is mentioned in a genealogy in Luke, and once in a genealogy in 1 Chronicles. Cain is only mentioned three times after Genesis 5, not at all in the rest of Genesis, and all three of those times in the New Testament, and those passages don't discuss his descendants at all, but only his murder and his wrong offering. Genesis 6 mentions nor refers to neither Cain nor Abel. So this theory, and it's a popular one, it simply has no biblical support whatsoever that I can find. Which brings us to theory number three. 
that the sons of God are some type of heavenly creature, not human. Believe it or not, I think that theory has the most textual support in the text of the Bible by far. For instance, the phrase sons of God only occurs three other times in the Old Testament outside of Genesis. All three of those times are in the book of Job, so it's all in one place. That means it's not overwhelming proof. But all three times, the book of Job is clearly speaking of heavenly creatures when it says the sons of God. The sons of God approach God uh, on in his throne room, and Satan comes with them. So this is not talking about humans. This is talking about some sort of divine creatures. In fact, Job 38, I believe it's verse 7 or verse 8, talks about how the sons of God sang as God was creating the world. So these are, be- these are beings that predate humanity, that predate the world. Like, I don't know if they're angels. I don't know what they are, but... I think they're heavenly beings. That's a strong bit of evidence in favor of viewing these sons of gods as heavenly beings. So you also got verse 2, which I think is strong contextual. In other words, inside the text, evidence in favor of theory number 3. Consider the verse I mentioned earlier. Quote, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. If that verse were simply talking about human males or the descendants of Seth or whatever, it's a really strange, strange passage. Did it really take hundreds or more likely thousands of years for human males to realize that human females were beautiful? I I frankly, I think that's a little silly. I believe the biblical text is pointing us to theory number three, that these beings were heavenly. Now, one more bit of evidence and I uh, maybe consider this a scrap of evidence. It's weak, but it's worth noting. It's fascinating. Maybe you've heard of the Book of Enoch before, E-N-O-C-H. It's not a biblical book, and it was not written by the Enoch spoken of in Genesis. It was not canonical, and I do not believe it to be inspired scripture in any way, shape, or form. It is, however, a very old book. And it was read by people in the early church and many early church fathers. Scholars' best guess is that the book of Enoch dates to around 100 to 300 years before the birth of Jesus, though some sections could be a little older than that. That book is very, very clear about who the sons of God in Genesis 6 were. So check this out. This is from Enoch 15. And he answered and said to me, and I heard his voice, fear not, Enoch. Thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness, approach and hear my voice and go, say to the watchers of heaven who have sent you to intercede for them, you should intercede for men and not men for you. You have left the high, holy and eternal heaven and lain with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men and taken to yourselves wives and done like the children of earth and begotten Nephilim, or giants, as your sons. And though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you've defiled yourself with the blood of women and have begotten children with the blood of flesh. And as the children of men have lusted after flesh and blood as those also do who die and perish. Therefore, I have given them wives also that they might impregnate them and beget children by them, that thus nothing might be wanting to them on earth. But you were formerly spiritual. You were living the eternal life and immortal for all generations of the earth. And therefore, 
I have not appointed wives for you, for as for the spiritual ones of the, of the heavens, in heaven is their dwelling. And now the giants, or the Nephilim, who are produced from the spirits in the flesh, shall be called evil spirits on the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies, because they are born from men, and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on earth, and evil spirits shall be they be called. As for the spirits in heaven, in heaven shall be their dwelling. But as for the spirits of the earth, which were born on the earth, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of these giants, or Nephilim, afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women, because they have proceeded from them. Whew, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? And again, I'm not saying it's scripture. I'm not saying I buy it wholeheartedly. I just am fairly interested in the book of Enoch, and I wonder if any of it is true. But according to what this book is saying, again, three to three hundred years before the time of Christ, they are saying that these watchers are the sons of God. They are heavenly creatures. They were immortal, but when they had relations with human females, they lost their immortality. They lost their place in heaven, and now they live on the earth. And when they die, they become evil spirits on the earth, evil spirits that contend against humans by oppressing, destroying, attacking them. Could this be the origin of some demons? Honestly, I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it's pretty interesting. Now, one objection that many have to theory number three, that is the theory that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are heavenly beings, is from Jesus's teaching about angels in Matthew twenty-two thirty, And that passage says, or Jesus himself says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, talking about people who've died and are being resurrected, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so some people say, well, that passage makes it very clear that angels are not able to have relations and that sort of thing. But honestly, I don't believe that objection holds much water for two very important reasons. One, Genesis 6 seems to be talking about intimate relations and not necessarily marriage. It is possible to have relations and not be married. Number two, and probably much more important, Jesus specifically mentions angels in heaven. And Genesis 6 is quite obviously dealing with beings that are on earth, not angels in heaven. In fact, these sons of God are never called angels. They could be different heavenly beings. Perhaps angels in heaven do not marry, but the beings in Genesis 6, be they human or angels or whatever, they're not in heaven, and they don't seem to be concerned with the rules of heaven. Another, another objection might be to say that heavenly beings are without gender. But I don't see that in Scripture either. There are heavenly beings, not called angels, but heavenly beings with wings in Zechariah chapter 5 that are females. Go look it up. I think it's uh, chapter 5 verse 9. And the heavenly beings in Genesis 18 and many other places in Scripture are clearly male. 
Well, can heavenly beings procre- procreate? I have no idea. The only bit of evidence in favor of that possibility would seem to be here in Genesis 6. And honestly, I see nothing anywhere else in Scripture that gives me the idea that they are incapable of such things or really capable of such things. So question number two, is Genesis 6 telling us that giants used to exist on the earth? Well, the answer may not be terribly exciting. I would say the answer is not necessarily. The Hebrew word there is the word Nephilim or Nephilim uh, or Ha-Nephilim as it's presented there. Most modern translations will not translate that word. So if you've got a new translation, it won't say giants. It'll just say Nephilim. Why do they do that? Well, because we don't know what the Nephilim are. It's a difficult word to translate because it really only appears in one or two other places in the entire Old Testament. And that second appearance in Ezekiel is kind of disputed. It could be the word Nephilim or it could be the word Nophilim, which is two different words there. But reference number one is from Numbers 13. And it's probably where the King James translators got the inspiration to use the word giant. And Numbers 13 is that famous passage where Moses has sent out the spies into the promised land and 10 of them had come back and say, hey, there's no way we can go do this. These people will kill us. And Joshua and Caleb come back and they're brave. So let's, let's read it. Numbers 13, verse 30. Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. I love his faith there. But the men who had gone up with him responded, we can't attack the people because they're stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we pass through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants and all the people we saw in it are men of great size. Hear that? Men of great size. That's interesting. Verse 33, we even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and we must have seen the same to them. So, these Nephilim, they're clearly quite big and impressive. And and Goliath, of David and Goliath fame, is probably somehow, some way related to these Nephilim. But are they giants in the sense that we think of giants? Now, I'm from Alabama originally, but I pastor Valley Baptist Church in Salinas, California. Love for you to come visit us one Sunday morning at 1030. We're at 320 Church Street. Where I live, it's about an hour from where the Golden State Warriors play basketball. If I went over to practice one day and somehow, some way, slipped around security and all that, got a chance to shoot around with those guys, I'd probably come home and tell my family that I felt like a grasshopper. I mean, I'm 6'1", weigh a little, a little over 200 pounds, around 220. But compared to Kevin Looney, who's six foot nine, or even Willie Cauley-Stein, who's 7 feet plus... I'm pretty short. I believe that these Nephilim whoa, were the offspring of heavenly beings and human females. So it's certainly possible that they possess traits that were above human capability, but we just can't be sure about their size at all. They may have just been a very tall race of people. Or who knows? They could have been just like NBA players, just a bunch of them. Who knows what happens when sons of God and daughters of men have children? So we 
can't be sure about their size at all beyond saying that they were likely significantly larger than the Hebrew people. Finally, question number three. Did God flood the earth because of uh, human angelic relationships? Now, got to say this. It definitely seems like there's a subtle, maybe even not so subtle, relationship between God flooding the world and whatever was going on with these sons of God and daughters of men. Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 4, could be giving us a clue to this. And it says this, For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, that passage keeps going, but the point of it being, God punishes angels who sinned, and those angels who sinned are somehow, some way connected to the time of Noah? Could this be talking about Genesis 6? Eh, maybe? Possibly? It's, it's an interesting passage, but honestly, it's fairly obscure. I'm not sure where Peter is going there, and I'm not sure we should build a whole lot of theology on it. The fact is, however, that the first part of Genesis 6 seems to indicate that it was the sins of humans like you and me that grieved God in the context of the flood. Verse 5 says, When the Lord saw that human, human wickedness was widespread in the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had men, made men on the earth, and he deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. Like I said, that, that's terrifying. It's just terrifying and chilling to read. The second part of Genesis 6, however, seems to make room for more than humans to be involved in the judgment. As verse 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. So my conclusion to question number three is a weak maybe. If the sons of God are indeed heavenly beings, as I suspect they are, it would appear that their dalliance with human females had at least a small part to play in the flooding of the earth. We might go too far past the text if we say much more than that. Now, I'm going to read some more scripture, but at the very end of the podcast, I'm going to come back and read you a section from Jonathan Edwards on this question about the giants and the Nephilim. But we've talked about giants and Nephilim too much for now. We need to get into our other scriptures. This is Ezra chapter 6, verse 1. King Darius gave the order, and they searched in the library of Babylon in the archives. But it was the fortress of Ecbatana in the province of Medea that a scroll was found with this record written on it. In the first year of King Cyrus, he issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt as a place for offering sacrifices, and let its original foundations be retained. Its height is to be ninety feet, and its width ninety feet with three layers of cut stones and one of timber. The cost is to be paid from the royal treasury. The gold and silver articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and carried to Babylon must also be returned. 
they are to be brought to the temple in Jerusalem, where they belong, and put into the house of God. Therefore, you must stay away from that place, Tatnai, governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar Batsanai, and your colleagues, the officials in the religion in the region. Leave the construction of the house of God alone. Let the governor and elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its original site. I hereby issue a decree concerning what you are to do, so that the elders of the Jews can rebuild the house of God. The cost is to be paid in full to these men out of the royal revenues from the taxes of the region west of the Euphrates River, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings to the God of the heavens, or wheat, salt, wine, and oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, let it be given to them every day without fail, so that they can offer sacrifices of pleasing aroma to the God of the heavens and pray for the life of the king and his sons. I issue also a decree concerning any man who interferes with this directive. Let a beam be torn from his house and raised up. He will be impaled on it, and his house will be made into a garbage dump because of this offense. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who dares to harm or interfere with this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued the decree. Let it be carried out diligently. Then Tatnai, governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar Batsanai, and their colleagues diligently carried out what King Darius had decreed. So the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Iddo. They finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and King Artaxerxes of Persia. This house was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the Israelites, including the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of God's house, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, and 400 lambs, as well as 12, 12 male goats as a sin offering for all of Israel one for each Israelite tribe. They also appointed the priests by their divisions and the Levites by their groups to the service of God in Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. All of the priests and Levites were ceremonially clean because they had purified themselves. They killed the Passover lamb for themselves, their priestly brothers, and all the exiles. The Israelites who had returned from exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the uncleanness of the Gentiles of the land in order to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. They observed the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with joy because the Lord had made them joyful, having changed the Assyrian king's attitude toward them so that he supported them in the work on the house of the God of Israel. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you. Whenever you pray, you must not like be, be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask them. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since he either will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, 
full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freeman Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That was the word of the Lord. Blessed be his name. And like I said earlier, I'll close with the conclusions of Jonathan Edwards, who uh, preached during the First Great Awakening, wrote lots of theological books, uh, famous for Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that sermon. He wrote about Genesis 6, and this is what he said. And look, Jonathan Edwards uses a lot of big words, just letting you know ahead of time, but listen to his conclusions. There were giants in the earth in those days, etc. Pausanias, in his Laconics, mentions the bones of men of a more than ordinary bigness, which were shown in the temple of Asculapus in the city of Asipus, and in the first of his Eliacs, of a bone taken out of the sea, which before was kept at Pisa, and thought to have been one of, Pelop, one of Pelops Philostratus in the beginning of his heroics. He says that many bodies of giants were discovered in Pauline by showers of rain and earthquakes. Pliny, Book 7, Chapter 16, says that upon the bursting of a mountain in Crete, there was found a body standing upright, which was reported by some to have been the body of Orion, by others the body of Etienne. Orestes' body, when it was commanded by the oracle to be digged up, is reported to have been seven cubits. And almost a thousand, by the way, that if it's an 18-inch cubit, you're talking about a tall person. If it's a 24-inch cubit, you're talking about 14 feet tall. Back to Jonathan Edwards. And almost a thousand years ago, the poet Homer continually complained that men's bodies were less than they used to be. 
and Salinas chapter 1, were not all that were born in that age less than their parents. And the story of Orestes' funeral testifies to the bigness of the ancients, whose bones, when they were digged up in the 58th Olympiad at Tegea, by the advice of the oracle, are related to have been seven cubits in length. And other writings, which give a credible relation of ancient matters, affirm this. Then in the war of Crete, when the rivers had been so high as to overflow and break down their banks, after the flood was abated upon the cleaving of the earth, there was found a human body of three and thirty foot long, which El Flaccus, the legate, and Metellus himself, being very desirous of seeing, were much surprised to have the satisfaction of seeing, which they did not believe when they heard. That's from Grotius's book to Veritate, Book 1, Section 16. Now, I can sympathize a little bit with our friends Flaccus and Metellus not believing that somebody had found a 33-foot-tall human. That's pretty tall. Back to Jonathan Edwards. Josephus, Book 5, Chapter 2 of his ancient history says, There remains to this day some of the race of the giants who, by reason of the bulk and figure of their bodies, so different from other men, are wonderful to see or hear of. Their bones are now, show, are now shown, far exceeding the belief of the vulgar. Gabinius, in his History of Maritania, said that Antaeus's bones were found by Sertorius, which joined, joined together were 60 cubits long. That's pretty long. Phlegon Trelinius, in his ninth chapter of Wonders, mentions the digging up of the head of Ida, which was three times as big as that of an ordinary woman. And he adds also that there had been many bodies found in Dalmatia with arms exceeded 16 cubits. And the same man relates out of Theopompus that there were found in the Cimmerian Bosphorus a company of human bones 24 cubits in length. We almost everywhere in the Greek and Latin historians meet with the savage life of the giants, mentioned by Moses. In the Greek, as Homer, Iliad 9, and Hesiod in his labors. To this may be referred the wars of the gods mentioned by Plato in his Second Republic, and those distinct and separate govern governments taken notice of by the same Plato in his third book of laws. And as to the Latin histories, see the first book of Ovid's Metamorphosis and the first book of Lucan and Seneca's third book of Natural Questions, question 30, where he says concerning the flood that the beasts also perished into whose nature men were degenerated. Well, Mr. Edwards, that's some fascinating stuff there. Uh, 20 plus foot tall people, eh? I don't know what I think of that, but uh, we will end there and let you think of it and come to your own conclusions. Were there really giants during the days of Genesis? Well, maybe. Thanks for listening to today's Bible reading podcast. Tomorrow will be a much more short episode, back to normal. We will be reading Genesis 7, Ezra 7, Matthew 7, and Acts 7. I hope you'll join us then. God bless you, and good day or good night.